Welcome to the cinema. Oh, you gotta be shitting me. Seriously? Book show? You motherfuckers! You could barely do one thing right. How the fuck are you gonna pull this shit off? What the hell's wrong with you? And there we are. Alright, so we're at the cinema shit show again, but this time I'm not sure what to call it. Do we call it the cinema book show? Because we have a special guest. Um, today we're, we're talking with John Tolson. Am I saying that right, John? Yeah, Tolson. 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 Yeah. John Tolson, uh, yeah, there's no E in there to make it sound like towel. That was my bad. John Tolson, uh, film I've had critic. that problem my whole life. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a film critic. He's an author. He's written multiple books out there. Um, I'm going to list them off here. The Turn to Gruesomeness in American Horror Films from 1931 to 1936. Subversive Horror Cinema, counter Messages of Films from Frankenstein to the Present. Global Horror Cinema Today, 28 representative films from 17 countries. Uh, you've written for Diabolic Magazine. You've written books about the films Candyman, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Dawn of the Dead, Midnight Cowboy. Um, and now your latest book, which is 40 Cult Movies from Alice Sweet Alice to Zombies of Moritau. Um So I wanted to ask... Before we jump in, John, did you actually listen to any of our episodes? Because you kind of agreed to come on here just based on our name alone, which is pretty <laughs> Just based on the name. Uh, you know, who could, I can't turn that down. I'm into cult movies, cinema shit show. It's the, I think it's the greatest name for a podcast I've ever heard. So. Brilliant. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so <laughs> glad to have you here, man. Um so, I was going to start by talking a little bit about you. Um, you grew up, like me, you grew up in the, the later 70s, earlier 80s, um, in most of your mm. formative years. Um, do you, uh, how much did your parents, like, support your horror addiction? Like, or how much not did they? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh well, they let me stay up late at night to watch uh, movies, double bill movies on TV, you know, because that was kind of the only way to see them back in the 70s in, in England. Uh, we didn't have a movie theatre in the town I grew up in. This was before VCR. Uh, it was really hard to see movies, actually. We only had three channels, terrestrial channels on the TV, and very occasionally uh, a horror movie which would show late at night and my, my parents let me stay up uh, to watch these movies uh, and I think at some point they installed a TV in my bedroom so I could stay up <laughs> you know and, and watch them with without them you know having to worry about me leaving the lights on and the fire on and stuff downstairs so they were pretty supportive and then you know in the 80s the, they, they went out and got a VCR just when kind of VCR started to uh, become popular. And, you know, the, the, I remember uh, back then you rented your VCR, you know, uh, and the guy that brought the VCR and after he sort of like 
uh, wired it all in. He brought a couple of movies for us to watch. Um, and one of the movies was Scanners. And I think the other <laughs> movie was Lucio Fulci's Zombie called Zombie Sweet. Flesh Eaters. So. So this man was almost like, I don't know, some kind of angel or devil kind of <laughs> sent from the radio rental store. Uh, and, you know, as soon as I put those movies into the VCR, that was it. I was completely hooked. Um, I'm going to pause for just a minute because I am getting a bit of echo. I'm going to turn on echo cancellation, John, and we're going to pick right back up. Yeah, cool. So one moment. And we're back. All right. So... So the the video age, like especially because you're you're in the UK, right? Mm. Um, so we had the video nasties right around that time as well as the VHS mm. uh, was coming up yeah. and getting more popular. So did they kind of allow you to just continue to to rent whatever you wanted? Or yeah, or, absolutely. Really? You know, you know, this as you say, this was the age of the preset videos uh, and. Uh, kind of like a video the video recordings act came in in 1984 so there was a couple of years really when uh, you could go out to the local video store and in my small town we had a couple of those stores and you, you know you can get these videos out and what did i see last house on the left um i spit on your grave uh, oh, you know, all of the, all of them, you know. But the thing is that, you know, they, they gain notoriety through the press uh, a little bit later on. And when we look back at them now, they, they, they're kind of still a bit, it's still a bit shocking as a sort of phenomenon. But at the time, people really didn't take it seriously at all. People used to go out uh, and just rent these movies and watch them. And sometimes they'd kind of laugh at them. And, and a lot of it was just curiosity curiosity to see what all the fuss was about you know and people as i say people really didn't make a big deal out of it i remember speaking to my neighbor i was you know 14 15 years old speaking to the next door neighbor a perfectly respectable guy in his 40s mowing the lawn and he would he would sort of tell me in great detail about all the killings in i spit on your grave which i hadn't, I hadn't seen and it, you know it, it was a it was a it was a kind of a bit of a joke in some ways uh, and but it was a lot of fun uh, and we used to have kind of like video nights with my friends uh, we'd go around somebody's house when the parents were out uh, and we'd slip on these movies you know like Night of the Demon from 1980 and, uh, oh that's one of my, one of my favourites yeah uh, absolutely <laughs> wonderful uh, and snuff and stuff like that and it never we never took them seriously. We just kind of, we just enjoyed them. That's an incredible childhood. I mean, I'm pretty jealous. I think the first, the first uh, horror movie that I ever watched was um, the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was probably about 11. Mm. Um, but my parents definitely wouldn't have been okay with me watching all those movies. <laughs> I was... Uh... I, I'm sorry, John, did you have something? No, no, go ahead. I, I, no, I'm listening to it. what your guy's kind of perspective on this is kind of interesting. You know, it's just, <laughs> just an interesting question. I've never even thought about it. You know, well, did my parents do me a favor or did they do me a disfavor by <laughs> allowing these films? You know, my parents were uh, of a certain sort of generation. I think that uh, they, they didn't really consider these films to be a, a 
problem. They were just kind of silly movies. I think it'd have been different if I'd have brought porno movies home. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that would have been a problem. But with the, these were just kind of like ridiculous, silly kind of horror movies. And as I say, everybody was doing it. You know, everybody. Well, it sounds well. It sounds like in, in where you came from, they made the problem worse by bringing so much attention to it. Like if they didn't want people to see it. They shouldn't have made such a big deal out of it, and it just you kind know, of would have it, remained on the shelves. By the time the newspapers had finished with it, you know, everybody just wanted to see. They want to see what the fuss was about, you know. Well, my my when I grew up, um, again, it was right when VHS was was starting to become popular here in the states. We had a little Radio Shack with a room in the back where, you know, they, they kept the videotapes and yeah, you could rent a, v, a, a VCR if you needed it. Back then there was no problem. My parents would just say, go get whatever you want. And that's why I ended up seeing city of the living dead, mm. AKA gates of hell, like nine years old, which I, I guess I turned out. Okay. Uh, but yeah. as, as it went on and it got more into like the mid eighties, my mom started to have more of a problem with it and she would try mm. to restrict um, you know, you've already watched too many horror movies. You should rent something else. And like everything else looks fucking boring. Um, so, mm, yeah, uh, that's really great that they were, they were, they gave you that kind of freedom through all of that insanity. Uh, you know, I, they probably wouldn't have done that a few years later after the furora, after the video nasty furora. And the, you know, parents by then may well have turned around and, and thought, uh, you know, are our kids being damaged by these movies? But it was only after the, you know, the, the kind of press had got hold of it and planted that idea into the minds of parents that parents said, oh, really, should we be allowing our kids to watch this? There may well be a problem. But uh, as, as you say, it didn't do me any harm. <laughs> but the, the, other, the other thing is that uh, there's always like an element of scholarship in there in a sort of very nascent form, even as a child. I mean, as I, I mentioned that, uh, growing up in the 70s, I had very little access to movies. But I, what I did have access to were movie magazines. And it was actually in those magazines that I started reading about films like Alice, Sweet Alice and Blue Sunshine and uh, The Redeemer, you know. And it was years until I saw these films. Uh, but these film magazines, they also introduced you to directors, you know, like George Romero and Jeff Lieberman and uh, David Cronenberg. And, and, and they had interviews with these directors and, and you just got really interested in films and got interested in uh, film directing. Uh, and uh, so by the time the VCR came uh, into being, uh, I was kind of buying magazines like Starburst that I was started writing for years afterwards. But you're kind of watching these movies, but at the same time you're reading about movies, or reading about the making of movies. So there's always like a critical eye to it. It's not just like you're sitting there being depraved and corrupted by video nasties. There's a kind of a critical eye that goes along with the sort of popcorn entertainment uh, aspect of it. But, you know, I always loved all sorts of movies. I used to watch James Bond movies and and. and you mentioned my book, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, I think that was the single most influential movie of my childhood. You know, I went to see that when I was about 10 years old and it completely blew my mind. 
you know, that whole sort of transcendent thing about what would it be like, how would, what would it feel like if we were visited by extraterrestrials. Uh, and the movie it really kind of taught me what a director did, you know, because I remember going out and buying the kind of making of book that came out at the same time and learnt about Steven Spielberg, learned what a director does. And, and, uh, and when, you know, even as a kid watching the film, I remember the second I took, my mum took me to see it the first time and I loved it. And then I persuaded my dad to take me to see it a couple of weeks afterwards. And I remember the second time I watched it, I wasn't watching the film. I was watching the audience and the, knowing what was going to happen. I was watching the way that the film was manipulating the audience, you know, the suspense and the laughter and the kind of the way that Spielberg... Uh, you know, just play the audience like a, a conductor. Uh, so there's a there's an extraordinary kind of educational value, I think, to to film going. That if you're really into movies, you always have that sort of scholarship aspect to it. Yeah, the close encounters, uh, like the the opening, uh, where the kid. Um, is is going to the door and the mom is like, no, no, no. Um, I remember that one really, that scene terrifying me as a child. Because yeah. um, Spielberg was still kind of in his horror thing. He had, E.T. was originally supposed to be a horror film called Night Skies, I think. So yeah. he always had that like in his DNA. So you I, you mentioned Starburst and I know it is, uh, I've, I, I used to buy some Starburst as well when I was older. But as a kid, I really only had access to Fangoria and famous monsters from Filmland. Mm. Um, and yeah, you, that, that really helped to teach me a lot about the art of filmmaking because there weren't a lot of books at that time um, for to learn about that. Especially, I'm in a very small town in the Midwest. Yeah. So my, my library has basically nothing in there except maybe the... Uh, what was that the 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 orange thorn books they had like Godzilla King Kong Frankenstein I don't know if you know what I'm talking about uh anyway yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah we we had to get our information where we could um, yeah. at that point and film really you know for both of us you know anyone who grows up in a small town in that sort of era film becomes really the kind of window on your world doesn't it it kind of takes you out of your immediate environment and you kind of seek that out i mean uh film you know film's not the only thing that does that of course music when you get into music when you get into literature or painting or poetry whatever whatever uh, sort of you get into or theater but when you grow up in that kind of parochial environment that small town environment you uh, those things really uh, are there to kind of open up the world for people yeah do you, uh, I think this is a, a question that Ben had suggested, uh, which was, if you didn't end up writing about movies and getting into into all of that, what do you think you would have ended up doing if you didn't, didn't have that driving you in your life? Yeah. Well, I was always into kind of writing about films and, you know, I used to write for like the school magazine. In fact, you know, the first review I ever wrote was of Night of the Demon, 1989 of the demon and i got a little column going called talking turkey so my what i wanted to do was just write about all these bad movies all these turkey movies but uh you know at the same time as i was getting into watching films and writing about them i was kind of getting into making films so you know 
I grew up with my 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 dad was a home movie enthusiast. He had Super 8 cameras, so I was kind of that was very familiar to me. Uh, and I got hold of that camera and that projector, and I started making little little films, and then sort of progressed from that to making bigger films and 16 millimeter films and sort of semi-professional movies. Uh, and at one stage, I did want to become a director, uh, and, but for you know. That, that kind of led into teaching and sort of film criticism, which I'd always been interested in, uh, kind of took over in terms of my enthusiasms. But I've always thought of the, all of those things as being kind of interrelated and it's all to do with film appreciation. You know, that desire to spread the word about the, the wonder wonderful thing that is cinema, you know, whichever genre, whichever form. And again, it comes back to this thing about the small town childhood and cinema really being a window on the world, especially as films were so difficult to access. But um, uh, and, and and as you said, any information was really difficult to come by in that, that sort of pre-internet days. And, uh, and, and you really appreciated those those film books, those film magazines and, and those trips to the cinema. So. I, my dad had an eight millimeter as well, but yeah. I never really used it until I turned like, uh, I don't know, I was probably 19, 20 years old. Yeah. I, I finally went to film class or whatever. So I didn't start very young, but do you still have those reels that you I made? I think I, I do have, yeah. Some, so I think I, there was, yeah, one particular film. I, I kind of started off just playing around with the camera just kind of like taking a little verite, you know, uh, three-minute sections. But then I decided to try and make a film, proper film, you know, and uh, wrote a script for it and storyboarded it and uh, got my friends to act in it and um, uh, edited it, you know, uh, and kind of put it to music and so on. And I think I've still got that that reel knocking around somewhere. I'm not going to tell you any more about it because it's just so embarrassing, <laughs> really, as a, in terms of the subject matter. So don't ask me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's the, the wonderful thing of it is what, you know, you know, when you start learning to splice mo bits of film together, it's almost like learning a language. And, and I just remember the thrill of doing my first edit, like a match cut, you know, of somebody getting out of a chair, whatever it was, I can't remember. But the thrill of it, that what you're taking is, it's not just a home movie anymore. It's a narrative that you're creating just through the act of splicing something together. Uh, and I just, I just remember the thrill of that and being trans pulled into the scene just by making a cut. Uh, and I don't think that thrill of putting together little bits of pieces of film ever left me. And actually I get the same thrill from writing, you know, of just putting sentences together, putting words together, juxtaposing things, you know, it gives me the same sense of creative and uh, endeavor that, that putting together shots used to do. And I was always loved moving cam moving camera i was always really into the kind of cinematography uh shot sizes and and, and that was that, that the kind of 
the micro elements of film, I suppose you would call them, are the things that really appealed to me uh, as a young filmmaker, uh, sort of like four, 14 or 15, I think I was. Uh, and I, I understood less things like lighting, art direction, costumes. I kind of didn't understand that as much. It was more the kind of the language of cutting and moving the camera. Uh, that was the thing that really interested me. Yeah, the the and especially if you put music in, uh, to it as well. My yeah. my two shorts, I I've uh, I spent a lot of time in the editing room trying to cut those those little pieces of eight millimeter. I never graduated to sixteen. Yeah. Um, so trying to snip those two and to match the music. Um, and, and also to match the visuals and keep it, have, hopefully keep it making sense. It's, it, it, it's very fulfilling when it works. Mm. There's something wonderful about marrying image and, and music, you know, and, uh, another, another thing that I kind of grew up into was the, the dawn of the music video, you know, in the early eighties. And I remember kind of watching some of the early music videos, things like the Aha video, uh, which is a great sort of narrative. Uh, and even sort of Michael Nesmith's video, Rio, which kind of used television studio techniques. But th th there was there were a lot of artists, you know, and filmmakers that kind of got into music video and, and sort of pioneered it. Uh and it was that kind of marriage of of the image and, and, and the music that, that I always found that incredibly inspiring. And, you know, one of my favourite films as a teenager was Tommy, um, Ken Russell's film. Mm -hmm. And I still love that film. And uh, I've even had the pleasure of... Uh, Ken Russell was one of my tutors when I was at university in Southampton. And uh, I, also, I went to see Tommy with with him uh, at a film festival in Cherbourg in France and sitting with him, watching Tommy and sort of talking to him about it was one of those uh, wonderful experiences. Um, but I always thought that there was just something extraordinary about the way that Ken Russell understood the way, uh, it's almost like a lyricism that comes out of the, the way he combines uh is images with sounds and even things like camera movements when you combine them with music they can become extraordinary you know you just think about Sergio Leone's movies with um, Ennio Morricone you know like Once Upon a Time in the West you know there were some times where he's got these crane shots uh that's kind of moving around and the crane's kind of rising up and the music's kind of rising at the same time uh and I just found found that whole language i suppose of, of the two of the marriage of the two things incredibly sort of exhilarating a, a lot of uh music video directors kind of graduated from there and went on to start their feature film careers uh i think russell mulcahy yeah uh, who did razorback one of the most gorgeous films i've ever seen um i think he came from music video as well yeah, he did. And uh, you mentioned one of my books, Candyman, Bernard Rose. He was a real pioneer mm. of music video. Uh, and uh, he he sort of 
Uh, I took a lot of those techniques into his into his movies as well. Lately, you know, uh, the way he kind of uses Philip Glass's score in Candyman, I think, and you know, Bernard Rose is a very musical person. You know, he's a he's a concert pianist and and a uh, composer in his own right. So that you know that that those two talents are very closely linked. I think of filmmaking. A film is almost a kind of musical art form in itself at its at its best. Yeah. So I wanted to, um, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the book now. Um, who do you see your audience for th this type of book as? Because it's, it's right up my alley. It is super detailed. It is full of history, background, um, like everything that, that I love, uh, knowing about movies. So is there like an audience that you're particularly writing for? Well, you know, I've always, as I said in the, in the introduction to the book, you know, that I'm hoping that the book will appeal to people who've seen the movies, uh, and that it, they might kind of get, get something new from the book that makes them want to go back and see the movies again. But also, uh, I'm hoping that people, uh, a, a lot of the readers may not have seen the films and that the book will, you know, inspire them to, to seek these films out. And let's say, really, it's the idea of the curiosity that uh, I was kind of scratching my head. Why, why, what draws us to these films? You know, they, some of them are really weird movies, really weird. And, and, uh, and my conclusion is that there's a, we have this kind of curiosity that these films uh, kind of, arousing us you know why did this film get made why did how did this happen you know what were they thinking how did it become a cult movie so uh you know i just think that anyone who buys the book will automatically have that same kind of curiosity about the movies that i have that make them want to kind of seek them out and also find out more about them yeah well, I was... go ahead no 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 you're good ben i've been I, I... taking up the whole time i was reading um Drag Me to Hell is one of my favorite modern horror movies, and I was really happy that you had it included in here. But uh, so I was reading through that, and I read through um, Brain Dead, and of course in the aftermath because that's the one we watched. But I, I was very impressed with just the amount of knowledge that you brought to each of these films. I I, I learned so much just in the you know the ones that I read so far. And I can't wait to delve into, you know, to the rest of the book. And I'm definitely going to be watching along as I read, you know, as I read these. But um, did you, do you have a love for modern horror or does it pretty much stick to more of the older stuff? Uh, you know, because it's a book about cult movies, you kind of want to let these movies sit for a few years you know, in order to discuss them in those terms of being cult movies. So a lot of the movies that are covered in the book are kind of older films. There are a couple of more recent titles, but... Um, I, mean, I mean, from your, like, your personal, like, horror, your love for horror, like, yeah. do you enjoy some of the newer stuff, or do you I do. Well, to... yeah, I do. Well, yeah, I do, you know, <laughs> and I've actually covered a lot of film festivals for magazines as a journalist, uh, you know, uh, here in here in the UK, um, mag um, festivals like Mayhem and 
celluloid screams for anyone who's kind of listening from the UK may recognise those. So I have, uh, you know, kind of kept up to date with a lot of modern horror movies. And I'd, one of the books that you mentioned is called Global Horror Cinema Today. Um, 20, 28 representative films from 17 countries, which kind of surveys uh, what's going on in ho- really in contemporary horror cinema. Uh, with a with a focus really on from 20, 2012 to around about twenty twenty, which is when when the book was written. Uh, so I do I do like modern horror movies. I'm, I you know I like cult movies. I like older movies, but I'm not one of these people who says I I don't like modern horror films. You know I I will go and see as many modern horror films as I can. There's just so many coming out now. It's really hard to to kind of keep track of all of them you know yeah. uh, and it's it helps to be able to go to these festivals to to kind of see the movies that really you may not may not even get a release you know there have been a number of films i've seen that uh haven't even um uh, got onto streaming you know uh, right. so you know uh watching watching movies and festivals is is has been a really good way of Keep keeping up to, to to date with what's going on in horror cinema, and also you kind of get a sense of the kind of general themes that emerge in modern horror. You know the kind of recurring themes, uh, and a lot of those themes uh, are classic to the horror genre and have been there, you know, throughout history. Um, but there are a lot of new. There was lots of new voices emerging as well that are giving new spins to horror you know like indigenous horror and black horror more women filmmakers making horror uh, that always brings like a, a, a refreshes the genre so it's it's great to so to try and keep up to date with those things too yeah i i think we're actually living in a pretty exciting time for for movies in general but also horror because like you said we're getting these different voices that you know in the past it was mostly white males <laughs> that were yeah. making these movies um, so I, I really appreciate just seeing the, you know, the different aspects of, you know, the different voices that we have. And um, so I guess I, I, I'm i curious just because I know me and both me and Nick's are both huge practical effects fans. Mm. How do you feel about um, CGI and, you know, horror kind of going away from practical effects or not using that as much, you know? Well, I think there there has been a kind of a return to those practical effects. Um, I mean, obviously, the the key issue is the cost uh, of doing it because of the time that it takes uh, to do it. To do it, you know, uh, if if it goes wrong on take, the first take, then it can t- you know you can spend hours redressing the set or getting getting the effect um, kind of reset. Um, so I. I think that there was a move kind of like maybe about 10 years ago to work towards CGI just because it was, it just helped to keep the budget down. Uh, but more recently, um, I, I think that a lot of filmmakers have, have said, look, audiences really are kind of missing practical effects. And it's a, a, an important part of the horror experience uh, is the the thrill of those practical effects which you kind of don't get with cg i i don't find personally uh so i i do think that there has been a kind of move back 
to those practical effects to what do you what do you guys think about that I would like them to find a uh, a nice middle ground where we can have the practical effects and have them on set and have that that feel of reality but touch it up with the CGI um mm. instead of I mean I'm sure you you know about uh, what happened with the, the thing like the prequel mm. where um yeah. if the the effects team did everything practical. It looked amazing. They have video proof of it. And then the studio just covered it in ones and zeros. And mm -hmm. it looked mm -hmm. awful. So, I mean, it's like they, they just... I, I I would like them to just find that happy middle ground where it's not mm. exclusively one or the other. Me. I think that, you know, real horror fans have a kind of appreciation for that, for, for effects as an art form and as a craft... Uh, and you know that's why people like Rob Rob Botin become uh, kind of like superstars in a way because of the admiration that fans feel for them uh, as artists. You know that the, the, these are real maestros and and innovators, and there is that feeling that CGI okay can kind of you know it has its uses, but in some ways it's just kind of too easy. You know, it's too easy. So there, there isn't that appreciation for the craft of you know. This must have been really hard to do, uh, and 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 with that comes a real appreciation from the audience. I think. And Rob Bottin got so disgusted with everything. I think he retired about eleven years ago, and just stopped working at all. Yeah, well, I I, I remember interviewing Rick Baker for Starburst and. Uh, and I think in a way, what he was saying is that there is a need to diversify because a lot of the work is being taken away from you because of CGI, you know, so you move into into other areas, you know, he's kind of moved into, uh, I don't know, sort of character makeup, I guess, you know, um, with the Eddie Murphy films and things like that. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, I, I just think that um, it, it's become pretty difficult for a lot of those effects guys <clears throat> to to keep their careers going. You know, they have, they end up going into other areas, uh, maybe directing or whatever. Have you seen um, the Terrifier series? No, I haven't actually. Okay, so it's Damien Leone is uh, the director of those movies, and yeah. His practical effects are like so insane. I mean, people have like gotten up and left and, you know, apparently thrown up and all this different stuff. But I definitely would recommend you checking those out. So even just for the effects, even if you don't like the movie itself, but his his effects are really pretty impressive. Cool. And so I, I'm hoping that that kind of spurs like a new movement towards, you know, I mean, not that it's new, but I, like you said, it is resurging, but I'm, I'm hoping with um, Terrifier making as much money as it did on such an extremely low budget that we kind of go back towards that that um, you know '80s kind of aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, I I think that where it becomes a bit a bit more possible is when you do have those very small productions, you know, where they're moving pretty slowly and they're not they don't have a lot of money, but you know they but 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 they can spend the time on it. If it's a really small contained production, you know that's you know takes place in 
uh, you know, a, a, an enclosed space, for example. Uh, did you guys see the film The Void from a few few years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Astron 5, yeah. I mean, that, that had a hell of a lot of practical effects. And done for very little money, but you just know that those guys were there kind of doing it themselves for days and days and days without having the sort of overheads of a studio, a studio kind of breathing down the necks, you know. So I think it's, from what I've seen, that that kind of move back towards practical effects has, has mainly been the, those kind of very low-budget movies where... Uh, the, the filmmakers have have got a lot of control because, you know, they've the, the, because they've got a very kind of uh, kind of contained environment that they're working within. Yeah. So w- when we're talking about the new book, forty cult movies, um, I know when when you were doing when you had done I because I tried to do some some research on you, John, uh, <laughs> to at least somewhat know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> But you had said when you were researching for uh, global horror cinema today that you went and delved into the archives of like USC and UCLA. Um, you were in Beverly Hills at the Margaret Herrick Library, and you were yeah. reading all these scripts and stuff like that. How? What kind of research did you do for this one? Yeah, well, the book that you were talking about was the the nineteen thirties book, which was the Turn to Gruesomeness. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. And that that's when I was, you know, went back to look look through all the Hayes Code documentation from the 30s to see how uh, the films had been uh, censored and so on. So that kind of research was necessary because I really wanted to return back to the primary sources, you know, because the argument of the book was that these movies were pretty um, gruesome, you know, for the day. But for, I don't know, for a book like... Forty cult movies. I mean, uh, you you just do the research, and 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 I don't know where it comes from. To be honest, a lot of it's just stuff that kind of just is just trapped in my mind. I don't know. I guess I've just got that kind of mind for the sort of the smaller facts. But I do think that what spurs it is a real interest in the production, the back backgrounds of the films. Uh, you know, so you can kind of. You can just you just use all of the research techniques that you've kind of developed over the years as a journalist to kind of these find these things out. You know, interviewing the filmmakers, for example, uh, reading, uh, of course, uh, other uh, other interviews they've done with other people, uh, and just kind of just generally digging into things. I've I've still got old, I've got loads of old magazines from my childhood you know those childhood magazines I was reading at 10 I've still got those you know so a lot of stuff on Alice Sweet Alice or The Redeemer I get from those really really old magazines uh, and just you know you just you just try and set up interviews with people like uh, I interviewed the Redeemer himself Fink, T, T. G. Finkbinder who's a school teacher now <laughs> have you seen that movie The Redeemer the redeemer, no, the redeemer, that's... son of Satan, is the. You seen that movie? It's come out under various titles. It's it's a blind spot for me. I, I'll be real honest. Uh, there's there's a few, quite a few in here. Yeah, that don't I worry about it. Seen. But seek seek it. I think it's also kind of called High School Massacre in the States. Oh, okay. I only bring it up because it's one of my favorite films. 
I said to a friend, I think it's a good film. He said, it's not a good film. <laughs> He's right, it's not a good film, but it's a really interesting film. It's an entertaining so, film. That makes it good. I'm, I'm very excited to uh, to to get through the rest of the of the book that you you know of the films that I haven't seen yet. So I'm definitely uh, appreciative of all the work that you've done. It's like I said, I, I've I've learned so much just in the the ones that I've read so far. It's it's uh, definitely recommended for any horror oh, fans good. out there. Well, I gotta say, mm. I was I was kind of relieved because. Normally, I I am the uh, the person that houses like random facts and knowledge about whatever we're watching. Uh, so I was kind of relieved that this time uh, I could I could just rely on you, uh, John. So that's nice. <laughs> uh, when when we were uh, we went through you know the table of contents and went through everything and and we picked a list of movies that neither Ben nor I had seen. Um, and then we also kind of narrowed it down a little bit and tested something that was on Tubi, which is a free streaming uh, service here in the States. Um, and they've got a wide, wide selection. And we found quite a few that were on there. We like to do that so that whoever's listening, whoever these insane people are that listen to us, uh, so that they can watch the movie that we're talking about. Um, and we narrowed it down. I think it was my choice. I narrowed it down to um, In the Aftermath. And one of the main reasons was I've seen this VHS on the shelves yeah. many, many times growing up. And I was always really intrigued by it, but I never went ahead and rented it. Mm. So that's kind of, kind of why why we went with that one. Because, Ben, you, you hadn't seen this one either, right? No. Okay, so basically what happened is uh, this is... This was made by New World Pictures mm. in um, 88. So Roger Corman already left. And uh, they took an anime from Japan and then cut it up, rearranged it, and put a bunch of live action of their own to make their own story out of it. Mm -hmm. Is, am I right so far? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so basically, New World Pictures ended up making an art film. Which is kind of what, what the way that it came it came off. Uh, does anybody want to like give a synopsis, like kind of sum it up, like what what exactly is going on in the American version? John, want to do it? I mean, yeah. I, I'll let John do this because he's he's the <laughs> expert. Okay. Oh man, <laughs> it's so hard because. Um, what you kind of outlined was uh, was was the kind of magpie nature of this movie. Um, what's the story? I mean, it's it's set it's set in a sort of post apocalypse post apocalypse. Uh, you've got some guys who have kind of hidden away in this bunker, uh, and one of the guys kind of encounters um, this young girl who's carrying this egg around with her uh, a giant egg and this giant egg according to this uh well the, the way that the, that our main character is kind of interpreting it it uh harbors some kind of special power that this young girl is, is searching for the right person to pass on this special power to and of course that person may well be our our soldier who's kind of trapped in this bunker 
So it's it's a very strange film, and, and um, I, I, again, it comes out. Imagine being given that assignment uh, as a young director, Carl Colpert, who was he worked in post production for Roger Corman uh, in the sort of in the early eighties, uh, uh, and it was about, I think only about twenty two, twenty three when he did this film, um, and knew. Um, New World basically said, "Here we've bought the uh, we've bought the uh, the rights to this Japanese anime uh, called The Angel's Egg, which is a a completely different kettle of fish to what you would expect from a New World uh, a, 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 you know New World movie." And but imagine being told, "Okay, you've got to take bits of this animation, and you've got to find a way to." Uh, to put it into a story that's going to uh, appeal to an American audience, you know, and this is what they came up with, uh, which is this load of old nonsense, really, <laughs> uh, about uh, these guys in this nuclear bunker. So, but you imagine kind of having to say, uh, make something out of this. And, and I think it's a conundrum that a lot of directors from the New World stable had to, had to go through, you know, I mean, Joe Dante uh, had to do something similar when he had to cut trailers for the New World movies, you know, it's kind of how do we cut, a you know, cut a trailer for these films and ended up sort of dropping in shots that weren't even in the movies, you know, like helicopters exploding. <laughs> the helicopter <laughs> explosion, <laughs> yeah. yes. How do we do, how do, you know, in TNT Jackson, she's going to put you in traction or whatever, whatever the movie's called. And of course, this goes all the way back to like the early 60s with when Coppola was engaged to do this stuff. Uh, and uh, and Corman uh, uh, bought uh, the rights to a Russian movie, Russian space movie, you know, it says to Coppola, OK, you've got to shoot some, <laughs> you know, new footage and try and make sense of and still put put something together that actually makes some sort of sense so it must be a incredibly hard thing to do and have you guys seen targets peter bogdanovich's first yes. film yes. Love i mean and, and it's such a fantastic film because in effect that's what he did was he sort of took footage from one of corman's movies the terror and sort of incorporated Boris Karloff, but he did it in such a brilliant way uh, that he was actually commenting almost on the way Roger Corman made films just within that film. You know, he's kind of commenting on that, as well, as well as commenting on the nature of horror, real horror, as opposed to sort of gothic stuff that Roger Corman was doing. Uh, so I've kind of run off at the mouth a little bit because I just think the reason, the reason I picked this film is because I just think it's such a weird concert a weird way of making a film you know yeah. and, I uh, and i don't know if uh, new horizons are still doing it but back then it wasn't as strange as it seems as it seems now the idea of being given somebody's film and you've got to kind of cut it shoot some new footage and kind of try and make something that makes sense because back then we had a lot of uh kind of collage movies coming out in the early 80s around about the sort of nuclear theme you know movies like atomic cafe uh and uh there was that there were animations coming out at the time about with a nuclear theme like when where the wind blows so there were sort of like precedents for this 
So maybe it was felt at the time that it wasn't such a weird thing to do. An audience would be, you know, be quite familiar with this kind of concept. So uh, just if anybody was curious, the the film uh, that Coppola uh, added extra footage to for Corman was Battle Beyond the Sun. Yeah, I believe. Um, but uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Um, it's OK to babble on Babylon because <laughs> we do it all the time. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, so the original um, Angel's Egg didn't really have a lot of music according to what you wrote. It was mostly like ambient sounds and, and sounds of the environment that, that are around them. There's an entirely new uh, soundtrack for yeah. the version we're seeing in the aftermath. Um, I was looking into that. Where, where did I put it? So it looks like Anthony Moore, I think, did like the actual soundtrack mm -hmm. soundtrack. Which I found really nightmarish and kind of hallucinatory. Hallucinatory reminded me of sometimes like uh, Dr. Caligari from 1989. Mm. Um, but uh, I was really con the um, Carnival Carnivalito Tango. Mm. Was that the piano? Was that the yeah, piano? Yeah, there's, there's a piano piece in there that. I mean, hats off to Colbert for putting this in. So I think as I write in the book. I the, the original Angel's Egg is a very kind of lyrical movie. You know, Oshi, uh, who was the the director, he's kind of came up through manga and anime, but he was very inspired by Tarkovsky, you know, the Russian director. So he wanted to make a film that would use sounds of the natural world, you know, in it rather than music. Uh, and it was a very, as I say, it's a very spiritual film um, where you can, I mean, it's, it's, if I try and synopsize that film, it kind of really, uh, it really kind of emphasizes the differences between the two approaches between, you know, what Colpert did with it and what the original film was. Uh, in the original film, it's, it's just about a young girl who is, uh, we follow her as she is, is kind of just passing through a post-apocalyptic city and she's carrying an egg under her skirt and that this giant egg is never explained. It's almost like a symbol, really. Uh, and she meets a boy and she takes him back to where she lives in, the, in this petrified forest and the boy smashes the egg uh, and the girl ends up kind of going into this river and drowning, but she has she's kind of reborn uh, on the, on the top of this even more giant egg. So it's all about death, rebirth, uh, and as I say, spirituality, um, but with no plot. You know, it's almost like an absolute film uh, in uh, with, with 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 virtually no narrative to it whatsoever. And what Colpert did was he tried to answer some of the questions like, what was the egg about? What was the purpose of the egg? What, where was this girl going? In the... So it's almost like an adjunct to the original film. It's kind of like uh, if the girl had stopped and met this soldier along the way, it's almost like he wanted his film to exist alongside the original, which I guess is quite clever in a way. Uh, but in a, kind of, in a slightly more kind of obvious 
one would say maybe westernised way, he wanted to inject a little bit of the lyricism and use some of the wonderful images, so the wonderful lyrical non-plot images of the original. So that's where you get that Carnivalito tango, which is almost like a music montage in, in the middle of the story, but it allowed him to kind of use some of the some of the anime stuff in there, uh, but without having to explain it, it was just like a lyrical interlude uh, in in the in the aftermath. I can see what now. I have not seen the original anime version, but I can see what it would have been like if if I were able to track it down. And I can definitely see like uh, where the influence from Tarkovsky uh, would come in there, like especially like Stalker. Yeah. Um, which, which I think by now has like four or five different versions of it out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course Solaris. But um, have you, you, have you seen, you've seen the original version, correct? I have, you know, I think it is on YouTube. I mean, that was because oh. the, the, I think that I'm trying to think back now to where I source that from because uh, it never really got a, a release in the West, that, that film. And it's really hard to see, but uh, you can, you can access access it from one of the stream, you know, one of the streaming platforms there, uh, and and it is a beautiful film, you know. And in some ways, in the aftermath, is a bit of a bastardization of it, you know. I mean, and I I appreciate what Colbert had to do, and it's a very interesting film in its own right. But I can't imagine what Oshi would have thought of it. Mm. Uh, you know, because uh, it's, it's almost like if, if they'd taken the Tarkovsky movie and Roger Cormanized it, you know, yeah. <laughs> there, there is this element of what have they done? They've butchered it, butchered this yeah. film. And really, people should be watching the original, you know, because it's a much better film, frankly, than In the Aftermath. Uh, in the Aftermath is a very interesting film, and uh, I think it has its. It's interesting its own right, you know, in a lot of ways, but it's not the beautiful artistic, uh, um, you know, masterpiece that, that, that the original is, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to watch Angel's Egg because mm. I, I love the style of animation, um, especially like just the scenes where like her with her hair, like the way that they made her look so just like, depressing and like... Yeah, I, mm. I, th- I thought I, I was very impressed with the anime, so I'm definitely looking forward to uh, checking out Angel's Egg. And also, there's that thing about, you know, that it was made a couple of years before in the aftermath. So we're talking about the 80s. And as I kind of outlined fairly briefly in the book, there is a whole kind of history of anime that um, addresses the kind of like, the experience of the Japanese in the Second World War with Hiroshima and bringing kind of like some of it's even biographical, some of the anime uh, uh, with these directors, more modern directors, kind of like dealing with the trauma of of that experience, but also kind of bringing it up to date and talking about... um, what was going on in the eighties with the cold war and the threat again of nuclear war, you know, right. in that decade and, 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 and then having, having experienced being bombed kind of like 
making these films almost as a sort of caution, as cautionary tales, you know. So there's a whole tradition of anime that deals with that issue of the, of the nuclear question, uh, and it's very kind of a very. I find it a very kind of moving aspect of anime, you know, that that, that they will deal with these this extraordinary national trauma uh, in this extreme, very artistic way. Yeah, a lot of the Studio Ghibli films deal with, you know, the war and the impending yeah. doom. And, and, and yeah, it's, um, it's very fascinating and it's an interesting look into, you know, obviously a terrible part of human history, mm. but they do it in a way where it's, you know, it's beautiful and they kind of, um, they make it so you can kind of be slightly in the shoes of, you know, the people that were going through it at the time. Mm. So I, I, I really, you had mentioned this uh, earlier, John, where they really tried to make it look like the live action was was part of the animation, and you mentioned specifically in the book where the feather lands, and then uh, it cuts to our first live action sequence where they pick up an actual feather, and it becomes sort of a theme uh, to tie together the end of the film as well. Uh, I was really impressed when it cut from. Uh, seeing the animated version of the angel, which is not in the original film, apparently, um, but uh, mm. and to where it just kind of uh, transitioned to her being an actual live actor at that point. That that really made me go, "Oh, hey, they're you know they're not really skimping on it." Even though I may not appreciate exactly what they've done here, I can see that they put a lot of effort into trying so. to make this work yeah i mean I, i'm not i would not try to denigrate in the aftermath <clears throat> at all because i think that actually colper uh, and everybody involved in the movie did a really good job given the assignment that they were <laughs> asked to do you know there are some really creative kind of ways i mean you know what was his problem he had to solve it was how do i get from one movie to the other you know how do i piece this movie together you know how do i take the original anime and take bits of it the bits we want to keep uh, and transition from that to the live action and then back back again to the anime and i think some of those the ways he goes between the two is very very clever and and as i say that that feather in particular was a you know a really nice touch so there are lots of really good things in in the aftermath and I think if anybody kind of came to it not knowing the background to it, I think they'd find it to be an extremely curious and very strange film, you know. And the first question would be, why do they keep using these bits of animation? Why is the, and you know, isn't it weird the way it goes from live action to animation, you know? And I think that it would be be quite. Um, in some ways, quite a rich experience because they'd say, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, that's a, somebody who's maybe approaching the film completely f fresh, you know, as, as a modern, as a modern viewer. Um, ben, do, do you have two different tabs open? Because there's two of you in here. I do not. I don't know why there's two of you. Okay. Um, <laughs> nobody need nobody needs two of me. <laughs> the Florida one is enough. Um, Dead ringers. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. I've not seen this new show. Um, All right. Oh, since, yeah. you, since, you, since you brought up Dead Reners, how do you feel about Brandon Cronenberg? Are you excited by his work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, in fact, I just recorded another podcast which we, where we're talking about um, modern movies that might become cult movies in the future, and I picked Possessor as one oh. of them. And, I, and I, I have to say, movie. I well, you know, I have a very love-hate relationship with that film because when I saw it the first time, I really didn't like it. Mm. Uh, I really didn't like the kind of mumblecore, uh, <laughs> uh, asp that that kind of muddy, flat, really flattened naturalism of the actors half asleep sort of thing. Uh, and then the the vibe the practical effects but i thought it was really gratuitous and nasty and and i don't and, it, and, and I, I kind of didn't like it for that reason but then i started to come round to looking at what cronenberg was doing and the themes he was following and the traditions of dystopia and so on and i, and, and I came around thinking it was a really really important film in some ways you know a film about modern corporations and brainwashing and stuff like that and uh, uh, so I, what do i think of him i think he's a he's, a, he's an important filmmaker uh, but i can't imagine anybody actually enjoying his films you know <laughs> well i i do so <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> uh, i i I, th I think that um i think we're going to look back like you said in 10 15 years and possessors Hopefully, not going to be a reality. <laughs> no, I hope not. You know, right? Um, uh, his his ideas are very way out there. You know, way out there. Uh, um, just almost kind of like you have to accept them on almost a kind of symbolic level, really, for it to work. Because otherwise, you go, no, that couldn't happen. No, I don't really. I don't really. Is is the best way to you know the most effective form of being an assassin going into somebody else's brain? I don't think so. Yeah, so you right. have to kind of accept it on a different level, a kind of poetic level in a way. And once you kind of accept that, at least for me, it kind of helped me kind of see where he was coming from. And once I felt that I could see where he was coming from, I really appreciated the film a lot more. So I wanted to ask. Uh, and again, we're coming back to uh, in the aftermath. Um, I know the original uh, cartoon, the anime, did not have a lot of dialogue, but it apparently had some. Um, so at one point, her quote-unquote brother uh, in this version is telling a story about a man who lived on a planet with no fish. Yeah. Uh, which happens right around this fantastic scene where you see these fishermen hunting shadow fish like on the buildings and on the roads, which is just gorgeous. But the story that he's telling is, is that cause I haven't seen the original yet. Is that from the original or is that something that they no, created? It's, it's totally Colpert's take on it, Sweet. you know, and it really, and it really kind of emphasizes the different approaches to storytelling you know, in the East and in the West, you know, there's this idea that we have to have a plot, you know, and it's got to be a complicated one, you know, whereas in the original, there's nothing, there's nothing's explained. 
and you don't need it either. And also, I think Oshi, what you what you do get is you don't get this dialogue, you don't get this exposition. What you just get is like this is pure cinema in a way. You know, you just get like it's kind of like a Sergio Leone moment I describe it as, where she encounters this guy in the city in the original. It's just like an in intercutting of close-ups of their faces looking at each other and they don't say anything to each other but uh, you know Oshi is using the language of cinema you know big big cinema you know rather than televisual film the way that Colpert kind of reduces it down to talking heads kind of talking this backstory you know so there's a there's a real different kind of approach you know i was just thinking of kurosawa you know i think there's probably an influence of kurosawa on oshi as well you know that big images uh images telling you what you need to know showing you what you need to know rather you being told in in a plot you know and base and leaving a lot of things open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah. I would yeah, which yeah. is it was absolutely vital, I think, to Osh's vision is that it doesn't explain anything. This it's on a poetic level that doesn't need explanation and you kind of understand it you understand it on that level. Whereas in the aftermath it's kind of like it feels like it's gotta explain it to the audience. The audience won't understand this. <laughs> you know, you can imagine Roger Corman you know, if he if he'd have been around saying, You've got to explain it to the audience, the audience is gonna get fed up, you know, that they don't understand. So so think of an explanation for all of this stuff that's going on. Uh and that's what New World sort of do with it, you know. So one of one of the things Ben and I usually do uh through here is we kind of we kind of try to go through the the plot and the steps of the film and and kind of discuss and maybe see if we if we understood it so we're gonna see if we can run through that through that real quick with you john and, you and go uh, ahead you, Which you can one? see how in the aftermath or the original well not the original in I the aftermath know. yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna hit YouTube when we're done here and see if we can finally uh, catch the original. So, uh, basically, this movie this movie starts out where we find out that the full title is not in the aftermath. It's in the aftermath. Angels never sleep, um, because they've decided that this person is an angel. Which now I have a question for you, John. Uh, in this movie, it's she's considered an angel, but in the original one, I don't believe she was, but. Is the official title Angel's Egg? What is the translation of the original title? The original title, I'm going to have to look this up because I can. I, I, I just don't have a good memory for uh, international Do you know Japanese? Title. I don't know. That's probably my way. <laughs> that's why I don't know. I don't have a good memory for Tenshi no Tamago yes. is the original. I don't know what the literal translation of that is, but it was released as Angel's Egg hmm. in 1985. Okay. And incidentally, well, I'm just looking at my entry in the book now. There's yeah about 30 minutes or so of Tenshi no Tamago used in 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 the in the aftermath. Angels never sleep. 
I guess that, you know, I, I would imagine that the Angels thing just kind of, they thought an audience will understand, a Western audience will understand this if we say she's an angel. They'll kind of get it, you know, the sort of Christian element of it, I suppose. They will un- it will help them understand. Right. The, the somebody's here to look over us and, and help us. Yeah, and we're exactly. just okay. It explains where she, why she's there in in the aftermath. You know that she's an angel. You know, look over overseeing him. You know, and why is she overseeing him? Because he's the chosen one to, to be given this special power to. So, and at this point, we don't know what it, what the egg is supposed to be. Um, we get an awesome title sequence with some amazing music. I mean, the 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 soundtrack for this is, is was really impressive for me, and I started thinking, well, this is this is a Maupin movie, and Ben will know what I mean when I say that. <laughs> we know somebody who likes to attend uh, movies under the influence of certain things. <laughs> uh, so, Maupin movie is something very visually beautiful like that. Um, uh, so apparently the the world has uh, you know been decimated by a nuclear holocaust. Uh, the air is contaminated. You can't stay out for very long without having uh, uh, some some sort of air uh, tank on your back. And there's two. Um, I guess they're supposed to be military survivors mm-hmm. that are scavenging the uh, the the land for uh, food and water and, and whatnot to basically survive. Um, and then uh, there is a a bad guy hanging out in a building somewhere that knocks out our hero, whose name is was his name Frank? Yeah, I think was yeah, knocks him out and steals his suit and his and his and his air tank, and uh, goes to attack the other guy. Um, and the guy wearing the stolen suit like he can't barely even see out of the mask because it's hanging so low on his face, you can't even hardly see his eyes. But he ends up killing, uh, hurting that dude and stealing his air tank, too. And off into the nothing he goes. Um, and uh, so at this point, um, our hero, Frank, um, starts trying to save his friend and drags him into a building where we get the classic sci-fi fan light. Where you got the fan spinning mm-hmm. in the background with the light shining through it. I love those. Um and then uh, that's when he, he first meets the anime girl. Meanwhile, we've heard her talking throughout all this, like trying to explain who she is and what's going on and the plot of the story. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it, it, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> so when, when these two finally meet together and he starts chasing her, it was a big relief. It was like now the, the two stories are combined and we can really start making some progress. Um, but uh, he ends up passing out. She says, I believe she says, I sent him a test and he he collapsed from mis- from not understanding or something for, like that, mm-hmm. I believe, which didn't mean didn't make a lot of sense because she just stood there holding the egg. Uh, <laughs> uh, by the way, we'll point out that part of his military outfit is just galoshes. And all I could think is he's walking around this 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 uh, destroyed ground and all that is his poor feet. He's got to have such sore sore feet. <laughs> um, at this point, he's not a lot of support with galoshes, or, or should we say rubbers? John, mm. should I call them rubbers? Wellington boots, we call them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Uh, no, so not, he, not much protection from gamma radiation, I doubt. No. <laughs> I think so. Um, so uh, he he passes out. Um, and meanwhile, the anime girl finds a jar and she fills it with water. She takes it to the river and then drinks it at the river. So I'm not sure what the point of that was. It may have made more sense in in the Japanese version, right? When you had to just put things together yourself. Uh, He wakes up in a hospital and it turns out there's another survivor and it's a lady. Um, And the the room that they're in is the only one that has oxygen. Uh, It's the only one left that can be sealed off. Um, And so uh, at, at this point, Oh, she tells him they're at the Green Acres Memorial Hospital. And you know what I started singing? The Green Acres theme, because I could not help myself. Uh, <laughs> um, so then we get the dialogue between Angel and her brother and all that. And we're, we're learning about the, the fish story. Our, um, our army guy starts to draw her. Like, hey, who knew he was an artist as well? He's mm-hmm. doing a pretty good drawing there. And uh, in her voiceover, she says that uh, her brother said he might be a doodler. <laughs> and uh, that sounds perverted. Um, but <laughs> uh, we get our beautiful shadow fishing scene and all that. Um, the lady is staring at, at our army guy as, as he's trying to eat his slop. Um, and it's like, lady, he may just get nervous when people stare at him while he's trying to eat. So just can can you just eat your own food and stop staring at him. And that brings us to our piano scene. And uh, I'm like, well, he's he's using up the oxygen, but apparently they have a constant supply that they can refill from here. So, okay. And he starts to play the piano, and I was I was blown away. It's like, it becomes like this, this sort of almost joyous, kind of, it's, it's a joyous piece of music mm-hmm. in the middle of all of this, uh, you know, this horrible world that surrounds us and, and, and uh, it makes you feel like giving up and he, he plays this really hopeful song and yeah, they bring in a lot of the, the uh, uh, imagery from the, from the anime and they shot some more live action. Like uh, another woman shows out of nowhere and is frolicking in the field. I don't know who that's supposed to be. Uh, but um so and um and uh at this point um uh this is when the angel falls asleep she says sleep had crept up and mugged me which i thought was a really cool line um so that that was pretty cool and at this point her quote unquote brother which he's not in the original takes the egg and smashes it with his his crucif- crucifix gun or whatever that is supposed to be and then, um, well, it looks like a crucifix. <laughs> I'm sure there's some reason for that in the original. Um, and uh, so, of course, she's upset because now her mission, she says that because she wasn't awake while the piano music was being played, she has missed her time to go and hand over the egg and and, and uh, let them save themselves. Uh, so she goes to tell her brother that, oh, she fucked up. Um, and she says, my brother, he was lenient. He should have spanked me with asteroids. And I thought that was a, a really amusing line. But then he, he says, you're the fairy of second chances, but guess what? So am I. I'm the fairy of second chances too. And he gives her another egg, which is going to make 
no sense at all, unless he was trying to teach her a lesson. But the movie does not go into that at all. Um, so it's like, why did you bother destroying the first one unless you wanted to hurt her? Uh, I don't know. Um, so finally, she walks up and she gives the egg to Frank. Frank starts walking around. He doesn't really know what to do with it until he meets up with the with the other lady survivor. And as she touches it, the lid pops off. We get a beam blown into the sky. The sky looks like it's on fire. Uh, the beam goes up and it kind of cleanses everything. And it's it's an amazing shot. Uh, the, the different elements that that uh, that New World and all that like combined into this one shot really made it effective. Uh, and it actually made me. I actually felt like pretty pretty taken with the movie by this point. I was like, yeah, I mean, let's <laughs> let give me something hopeful. Um, and then um, we get the beautiful scene where uh, the girl goes and and jumps into the river, and she meets her older self and explodes a bunch of other uh, eggs up into yeah. the top of the river, and then their giant cathedral ship takes off and she's now uh, like a, a permanent statue on, on this ship and it leaves, it leaves the brother behind or whatever. And now the human race um, can now go ahead and I guess, start rebuilding from, from these two survivors. It's, it's a lot to handle. Um, and uh, even with all the explanations, um, a lot of it, you still just have to kind of roll with but I think it was gorgeous. Uh, it was really creative, um, what 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 they were able to pull off and try to make it, you know, Americanized. Um, I was really impressed. I, I really liked a lot of it, and um, I, I feel kind of bad that I never rented it when I was younger. Uh, I probably would have blown my little mind away mm. um, when I did, and I'm 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 pretty glad that it was in this book and brought to my attention. Ben. Um, well, I know you prefer, you would want to prefer to watch like the full anime, and I do too. I mean, do you have any feedback, opinions on, on what you thought about the film? I mean, I appreciate it for what it's trying to do. They did a very well, a very good job. Um, I, like John had said, I've never really seen anything like it, and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's interesting and uh I'm I'm happy that I watched it because um, you know, it's definitely something that's fairly unique. But I for me a lot of it was just it was lost. I I, I really love the animation. Um I love the uh you know, the score and the soundtrack and all that. But for me the 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 regular the real life stuff was just kind of I'm still glad I watched it. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I just think it, hearing you sort of ex describe the whole movie, it just brought really brought it home to me. Uh, you know, the, the idea that Colbert was probably told by New World, you've got to take this movie that doesn't won't make any sense to a Western audience, and you've got to try and come up with something that does make sense. And what he came up with was something that made even less sense than the original <laughs> film. <laughs> because as I said, the original film makes sense on its own terms, you know, as a poetic piece. You kind of you kind of get it, you know, in a way that you it, it in the aftermath, 
is just you watch the movie and you go this is just a weird little movie you know i don't get this movie i like it i like some of it you know it's kind of some it's so strange that it's kind of like compelling in its own way but i can't imagine anybody kind of coming out and go yeah in the aftermath that really said a lot of interesting things <laughs> it, made sense. It's, it really it, it's a mess it's a mess you know and how could it ever have been anything other than a mess you know and it, yeah, there's it's, no way you can take that tenshi no tomago and and turn it into something that's a linear typical linear narrative that is going to make sense to uh you know an exploitation movie audience you know and i just i just think uh, what on earth did audiences think of this those people that saw it what was their response to this you know right because i think it only got a theatrical release what was it in uh, you mentioned it in the book was it australia or something yeah it... i just i have a feeling that it just went was dumped straight onto video you know yeah uh, yeah so there were a lot of unsuspecting uh, rent children and and renters Robert, back in yeah, the back back in the day when as we were saying, video was really kind of run by these little independent distributors and video sh stores were really desperate for new new material and there really wasn't that much kind of coming out because the majors hadn't really got behind it as much in sort you know the sort of mid 80s until the late 80s i don't think so you can imagine new world going it doesn't matter if this film doesn't make sense you know we're just some you know we're going to sell it to a load of video stores across the states and uh, you know put 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 a you know a picture on the front that looks kind of a bit post apocalyptic and you know uh, and uh, people in will rent it and i'm sure a few people did you know I find it a very interesting film, but again, it, it the thing is when you know its background, you kind of think, I kind of know why this film is the way it is. So it's kind of lost a lot of its hold. But at the same time, it's just so weird a way of making films that for me, that's why it's a cult movie, you know, because it's just such a weird hybrid movie. It's, what do I call it? A magpie movie. It's a mashup mashup movie you know and, and so i guess people uh, who do appreciate it are very much uh, of a cult of a, of a sort of a niche so that's why it's kind of in the book you know and there are very so, very few films that are made they have come into the ex into existence you know for the reasons that 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 film did so you brought up something because you said, yeah, you picked the, this is why you picked this one as one of your, uh, 40 cult movies. Um, and there were a few in here that I wondered why they were included and nothing against you. I was kind of curious, like invasion of the body snatchers. Is it from 56? I mean, that's considered just a, I thought that was considered just a classic. Um, yeah. Is, is there a reason, is there a particular I, I, yeah, reason why I, it's I in mean, here? I, I just think that it's kind of in there mainly because uh, of all all of the kind of remakes, you know, even though I don't really go into the remakes, I've, but I think that's kind of, for me, what makes it 
a cult cult movie is because you know because the remakes uh, add a sort of cult essence to it you know like the philip kaufman 78 one and and uh, uh even the sort of um the the one that was made um in the 90s body snatchers body yeah. snatchers yeah by uh, abel ferrara uh and and so Woo-hoo. yeah so i mean it's a kind of classic sci-fi movie sci-fi horror movie the original but i think the fact that you know that we get the 78 remake and then the, uh, and then the Abel Ferrara has added a sort of veneer of cult to the to the whole idea of it um so that's why it's in there yeah cuz i guess like more more modern audiences i guess would kind of look a lot of them look down on things that were made before they were born or in black and white or whatnot and so as the as the more recent ones are more available i guess those are the ones that kind of are you know more stick out in their mind i get that mm-hmm. uh there's, there's a lot I, of great great films question. on this list yeah i had a question i had a question um so you obviously narrowed it down to 40 was there anything that you didn't include that you wish that you would have like did, did you have any like struggle or existential crisis over any movies <laughs> like well the, yeah i mean there's some things in there i probably there's probably about 20 more that 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 could have gone in you know uh and if i did a follow up if i did 40 more cult movies there'd be <laughs> there'd be there'd be uh, there'd be uh, other stuff in there I guess uh, you know, I've written things on things, uh, movies like Last House on the Left and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Again, very classic kind of cult movies, but for me, they are kind of cult movies. I guess they could have gone in there, but uh, for me, they're not quite as cult as the ones that I chose to go in. Yeah, there's. <clears throat> Some great stuff on here that I I would recommend a lot of people check out, especially like Legend of Hell House is in here. That's that I always play that with the double feature with the haunting. They kind yeah. of like complement each other really well. I know Ben was really up, up uh, 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 happy to see Upgrade in here, which is, is is not the most recent film. That would be one I haven't seen uh, that I can tell so far. A serials. Serial Killer's Guide to Life? Yeah. I don't think I've heard of that one. I've seen that one. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's a pretty good okay. film. I mean, it's kind of got, has kind of elements of Fight Club and Thelma and mm-hmm. Louise and, uh, you know, uh, as a serial killer road movie. So it's got a lot a lot of interesting elements that are very kind of cultish and the way it's been put together, um, it's it's got kind of like a one eye on that sort of cult audience as well so uh that's the reason that went in uh and you know also when you kind of do these kind of essays of that sort of length you often want to talk about other movies as well you know so even though it's 40 cult movies there's a lot of a lot of references to a lot of other movies in there so some of the movies that i chose to put in i thought the uh they were called you know, quite rich in that you could talk about other movies that had influenced them as well. So you were kind of spreading out the focus. So it wasn't just the 40 movies, but it was, you were kind of spreading it out to talk about other cult movies and 
the way they've influenced them or the way that they're working within uh, that there's a similarities between them so like serial killers guide you know uh i thought that gave a lot of scope to talk about some of the kind of british cult movies that are not very well known like radio one you know like um chris pettit's movie from the late 70s which is a sort of black and white road movie produced by vim vendors you know not a lot of people have seen it but uh, apart from the fact it it does seem to have been an influence on serial killers a guide, well, to, I... life, a guide to life it, it, it just allowed to talk about other kind of aspects of cult cinema at the same time and another movie I talk about in relation to that is Butterfly Kiss, which is one of my favourite films, British films from the 90s, which was Michael Winterbottom, who's a real yeah. cult, really a cult director. One of the few cult British directors, you know, somebody who I think, uh, you know, you could call a lot of his films cult movies. But Butterfly Kiss is like a lesbian serial killer road movie. I mean, that's really a really cult kind of concept, you know. Uh, so I was able to sort of talk a little bit about that film as well um, within that entry. So I guess as well, Invasion of the Body Snatchers allowed me to to do that a little bit as well to sort of talk about, um, you know, so some of the things that were going on in America in the 1950s, the anti-communism thing, Um and there are some themes that do run through the book, like the idea of juvenile delinquency uh, being uh, a theme that's often um, addressed in a lot of the films, you know, all the way from kind of rock and roll high school to um, the new kids, you know. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of threads, kind of interconnecting threads between the films uh, which is one one of the ways that helped me kind of choose the ones that went in there. So uh, you might, uh, I mean, uh, it's very, you know, very valid to kind of question why a, a certain films have been included, but it's because it's kind of part of this sort of tapestry. The bell, is that time? Time? No. Sorry. Time to go? The bell? No, it's just... That's just a message uh, that should have been silenced, but oh, okay. uh, we're not. We're, it's not. We're like, not very professional, John. No, no, it's not like time, gentlemen. Please, that we have no, in no, 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 our no. English. No, books. no, no. You, you've got our attention for as long as you feel like being here, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just a question. I, I mean, I, it wasn't that I thought. Well, this doesn't deserve to be here, but I, I, I. I really like, like you were saying, it gives you a chance to talk about other things and other yeah. films and other themes, uh, especially when you were talking about uh, in the aftermath where you were talking about a lot of the the anime that did get released over here. Like I think Great was Grave of the Fireflies was was maybe one of them you you brought the, up or yeah uh, he's gonna say it. the wind blows right where the wind blows where yeah wind blows. when the wind blows yeah. was a, was like a British uh, film. But it, uh, which was an animated film about what would happen if they dropped nuclear bombs on England, you know, and this elderly couple's experience of that. Um, but it's a kind of an interesting film because there's the connection that was directed by Jimmy Murakami, who's one of Roger Corman's from, you know, another director that came up through the Roger Corman school. So there's that connection there. So there's, you know, 
there, there was kind of a lot of it, a lot of stuff going on in in the eighties to do with animation and yeah, you and not only that, you brought <laughs> up uh, the day after, which was uh, yeah a huge deal. Yeah, a huge deal, and kind of I suppose created an interest in that kind of film. Uh, you know, in the fifties there was a big interest in nuclear, you know, post-apocalypse atomic movies you know and then in the 80s i guess the cold war was pretty hot in the in the 80s with reagan and russia uh, and the threat of nuclear annihilation so there's a, a big interest uh, in in cinema uh, after the day after that's kind of i suppose it was like an expose of what would happen uh, in a nuclear war and uh, you know it, it made really big waves with audiences i mean one thing we haven't really talked about which is another strand to in the after, in the aftermath is there's been a big tradition of taking movies from japan and kind of americanizing them not just by new world but other movies like god right away from the 50s like godzilla you know, which was released in an American version with additional scenes and movies like The Green Slime. Which have you seen <laughs> that movie? I love The Green Slime, the green... but that was that was a co-production. A co-production, yeah. You know, but you know, released in. I think it was it was a different version in Japan to what it was in America. I think they added, you know, more scenes to it. There, you know, and and. and that's something that's that had been going on for decades, almost like a, a strange, uh, strange kind of a, a product, a co-production agreement between Japan and and America that 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 make those films of the Toho films, making them available to American studios who would then kind of add bits and sort of Americanize them. Uh, and I, I think it I did... it kind of happened. In a sort of reciprocal manner as well, I think a lot of American films were released in Japan in slightly different versions. Uh, and even quite recently, with movies that you wouldn't expect, I mean, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead was released in Japan and and, J and the Japanese distributor put a new opening on Romero's film, you know, that uh, in which a, a planet explodes... And emits radiation that that hits the earth and makes people come back from the dead. You know, so there's a they explained why there were zombies to the Japanese audience, which is really extraordinary. You know that that's pretty. That's pretty great. Yeah. Well, there I was. You had triggered. I'm trying to think of the movie you might know, John. Um, there was a Toho film about it, like an abominable snowman. And they brought it over to the to the U.S. and and recut and added uh, different scenes. All right, never mind. No, uh, <laughs> an okay. snowman in Japan. Uh, yeah, um, but um, you when we were talking about um, uh, the day after, which I I was probably in fifth grade at that point, and all the teachers were like, "Don't watch this this show on TV. Don't." <laughs> Don't watch this. And of course, all of the kids went home and watched it and were, were terrified because we were in the Midwest where all those missile silos were, where all the bombs were hit and all that. But you guys uh, across the pond, you guys had your own. That was that was threads, right? Yeah. 
Well, I yeah, I mean, I was 16, 17 when those came out, and I remember watching the day after, and it was pretty horrifying. And then watching Threads, and that fucking traumatised me for years. It really, you know, it really did. And you talked about, you know, you talked about, did my parents mind me watching horror films? You know, well, the film I wouldn't want to show my kids would be Threads. You know, I wouldn't yeah. want to do that to them. And I actually rewatched it a, couple, a few years ago, and it was still a traumatic experience. It was just incredibly negative. You know, I think it's even it's it's even more horrifying than the day after, actually. Um, even though it's a totally different country, you know, or you know, from where I'm at, um, it, it's a great film. So i i was I was thinking if we wanted to do something kind of like a lightning round with the uh, table of contents with with the movies, but I couldn't really come up with anything. <laughs> I did, I did, oh. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I could make you do a lightning round where you have to rate everything on a one to five scale, but I didn't feel like doing oh, that no, because please, <laughs> we'll be here for about two weeks. I'll be, I'll be going. Oh, oh. shall I give it a one or do I give it a five? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do have a question though that can kind of uh, shorten it extreme. Uh, do you have a favorite movie on this entire list? You know, it's the film that I said to my friend, it's a good film, and he said, it's not a good film, which is The Redeemer, Son of Satan, which you guys haven't seen, so you're going to have to go out and watch it. But uh, that film is really crazy. Did you read the my entry on that one? If not, read the... It, it's a slasher movie, but it's also got like a satanic influence to it. It starts off with a shot of a lake... Uh, and it says, from out of the darkness, the Redeemer shall return to wreak vengeance on the sinners of this world. <laughs> and then this young boy's hand appears out the surface of this lake. And this young boy gets out of this lake and just walks to this town. And he joins the choir of, in a local church. And... and um. The preacher one night is asleep in his bed and the young boy comes to visit him. Not for the reasons you're probably thinking. And the preacher grows an extra thumb for no apparent reason. <laughs> and then we cut to um, a high school reunion uh, where all of these people... Uh, you know, uh, having their high school reunion, and they're killed off one by one by the Redeemer, who uh, adopts different persona throughout the film. But it turns out the Redeemer is the priest with the oh, extra wow. thumb. That's the movie. I mean, you've got to love that film. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, not, that... What is not to like in that movie? Oh, it's. <laughs> but it's actually really wonderfully directed uh in terms of the look of the film the cinematography of it really belies a kind of low budget slasher movie uh and it's just a genuinely strange little film you know genuinely sounds strange. great sounds great 
But yeah, I don't, I don't, I've uh, always loved that. I don't know why, but I've always loved it. And uh, there you go. I, th- I think John would be good at the shit show. He does a good recap. <laughs> I made, you, have- I, you know, I made most of that plot up. When I don't remember things, I just kind of make it up. <laughs> you we watch, do that you, as well. You watch that film and go, it's nothing like what he said. Uh, that's great. <laughs> do you do you have a... We'll, we'll start wrapping up here, but um, do you have a favorite horror director? Uh, it's Romero. It's my favorite. It's always been my favorite, right from when I was a kid. Because the first mm. the, the first horror movie that really made an impact on me was The Crazies, which was one of the wow. movies that I watched on those late night shows that my parents foolishly allowed me to stay up to watch. And it was July the 28th, 1978. I remember the actual date. Um, and the movie was The Crazies. It was the second half of a double bill. Uh, and... I loved that film. I was 11 years old. It didn't scare me, but I kind of just got the irony of it. And I loved the the kind of realism of it, the kind of muffled sound. And um, uh, from then, after that, uh, the next movie of his I saw was Dawn of the Dead. And as I said, in my in my town, we didn't have a cinema. So they had sometimes had these little 16mm shows that they'd show to... Uh, an industrial firm in the town that made dumper trucks and uh, tractors would would put on a movie show every now and hmm. again and invite all the kids of the town to this movie show, get them in this big mess hall, show this movie on 16mm and they showed Dawn of the Dead to all of us and we were all like 13 years old and we was watching people's arms being torn off and stuff like that and we go fucking hell this is fucking brilliant we love this you know and from then on i was hooked and and i kind of uh, through reading those magazines i realized that the guy who directed these two films that had really made an impact on me was romero so from then on he was my man so out of the the Living Dead uh, trilogy, do you consider it a trilogy, or do you consider original, Land of the Dead part of it? Yeah, no, you can. Uh, I think there's like the original trilogy, and then there's the later trilogy of um, Land of the Dead, Diary, and Survival of the Dead. Okay, do you? So, out of the original trilogy, is Dawn your favorite? Yeah, well, I wrote a book on that, so I guess. <laughs> Good question, Nick. Yeah, well, you could no, safely, okay. safely safely assume that's my favorite. He could have another book coming out about Day of the that's, Dead next. That's, Who knows? That's that's true. That's true. Actually, speaking of uh, of your books, I was during this whole conversation. I was thinking that a great book that I don't think anybody's done and. Correct me if I'm wrong. I would love to see a book expo- uh, of detailing all of the different directors that came out of the whole Roger Corman, uh, like under the, his umbrella, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people don't really understand. You know, I love Roger Corman movies, but I don't think they like people completely understand just like the far reaching art that he touched in so many different ways. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a super 
super idea for a book, fantastic idea, because also the you know this the idea of the Roger Corman influence on these directors and the New World influence on these directors. You know, how did it make them the directors they that they be, became? You know, and and just the sheer range of the directors that came out from Roger Corman. You know, from Scorsese to Coppola to Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demme, um, and you know so many more directors, uh, Jonathan Kaplan. You know, and 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 what, what I guess finding out from them through interviews if they're still alive, if they're still alive, or you know from uh, archive interviews, finding out what what. Coleman did for them, you know, in terms of yeah, how, how they, you know, shaping them as directors. So yeah, I think the general public would probably not realize the Scorsese, you know, or a couple that came out of that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I guarantee you, if you ask most people, they wouldn't have any idea. So I, I think it would be an interesting um, education for you know a lot of people. I know, you know, some lesser known ones like you know Amy Heckling. I think Amy Heck, either Amy Heckling or Amy Jones, or maybe both, sort of came mm-hmm. out of uh, Roger Corman as well, um, and you know, uh, uh, just a, a number of other uh, lesser-known directors, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the Roger Corman Film School. I think yeah, is how most yeah, people they, refer they to it. Call... And, and plus, yeah. a- actors, the actors yeah. that came out of there, Jack Nicholson and. Uh, that guy that's in every movie. Um, he was in Little Shop of Horrors, and all of a sudden, Dick I Miller. cannot remember. J- Dick, Dick Miller, Miller, yes, man. that guy. Man, the I ultimate bad guy. <laughs> yeah, shows up in uh, other movies in the 80s and stuff, playing the same character, I think, in Chopping Mall. Yeah. Doesn't he show up as Walter Paisley? Yeah. And I think, um, uh, yeah, the, yeah. He, he had quite an effect James on Cameron. so many people. James Cameron, and I think Dick Miller's even in Terminator 2, isn't he? Yeah, he's the gun he's shop the gun owner. He's the gun shop owner. <laughs> yep. Uh, and Cameron did a lot of work, I think, with Charles Band as well, didn't he? Or no, that no, that was with Corman, with like Battle Beyond the Stars and stuff. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I think I've he been was on a, an art director, a... and then he, didn't he do Piranha 2? For Corman, yeah, the spawning. I still haven't the the spawning, the spawning. Yes, I still haven't straightened that whole out. There's conflicting stories. Some stories are that he basically completed the picture and was fired, and there's other ones that he started the picture and then was fired, and then the producer took over. So I haven't quite uh, mm-hmm. haven't quite nailed down what the real story is. I don't. So yeah, I any- don't. I don't know. I think we Cameron. I think. Uh, he really got his start after, as a screenwriter, didn't he? You know, he was such a good screenwriter and the studios really wanted him as a screenwriter. Uh, and that and, and that's kind of what led to him doing Terminator and then getting uh, getting the the, uh, the job of doing an alien, doing an alien sequel. Yeah, and was, multi-talented. Multi-talented. Yeah. 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 He went from dressing the set with Big Mac uh, cartons 
to uh, yeah, well, direct yeah, some of the biggest movies. That, you know, you learn those skills from a Roger Corman background. You know, you yeah. learn to do everything. You know, you learn to do everything. You learn to do the whole thing. You know, uh, and in different departments. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I actually I knew a a guy who owned a restaurant when I was growing up, and I asked him like, you know, what well, what's your secret to success? And he told me that the reason why he's able to do as well as he is is because he knows how to do every single aspect. And he said, because of that, I can, can I, I, I'm not strictly relying on somebody. I know how it's supposed to be done. So I can interject <clears throat> without just sounding like I'm just trying to play boss. I actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so I, I think a lot of those directors that came out of there because they were dealing with the low budgets, they had to know how to do every, everything. I mean, so there was no ego or you just did what you had to do to make get the movie done. So I, just, I think when you get a director like that or, you know, as you say, in, in any sphere of business, you know, where you get a boss who actually knows what people's jobs are, I think it, 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 it brings with it a certain amount of respect, you know, that you mm -hmm. get from the people that you're working with because they know that you uh, understand what it is that they do right. you know so i right. think i think it's a good thing for a director to have that you know coming back to romero you know this is a guy who you know he was the cinematographer he was the editor he was the director of all of his early movies you know he would have loaded the camera himself he knew he knew how to do everybody's job maybe he couldn't do it as well as some of other people but you know he knew all the equation of filmmaking. So I, um, Ben, did you have something else? Well, I, I have one last question, but if you have something, yeah. we'll, we'll, no, we no, can no, make go it. ahead. Go so, ahead. um, if you could ask, if you could tell your younger self some advice, and this will be for people who have inspiration to, to be an author, what what would that be? What would the be, advice be that you would give yourself to this? You know, your version now to when you first started. What would be that advice? Well, I you know I would say you know it's it's kind of like to get to the stage where you're writing books. It's kind of a little bit like training for a marathon. That if you kind of first time out the gate, you just sit down and try and write a book, you're going to find it very difficult. You've got to kind of work up to it. So. You know, I started off blogging, you know, when, mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of writing short things. And from that into writing articles for magazines and uh, from that, you know, and then kind of getting paid for it. And you you just kind of move to walk into a kind of professional sphere then. Uh, and you and you kind of have to learn, learn to work to deadlines and so on and so forth. So the advice for me would be to kind of start start off with something manageable and kind of work your way up to uh you know doing something something bigger like a book you know because if you if you try to run that marathon without putting yourself through the training you're going to find it really difficult to finish it you know 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of young authors they try and write like the next great American novel or <laughs> the the next great you know European novel, and it, I I think that that's probably not realistic. Yeah, you know, I think a, a time on a tradition with authors of sort of fiction is you start off with short stories, don't you, and then you kind of eventually move up move up to novels. But it's that thing about writing. Uh, is you know it's like anything else it's like learning to play a musical instrument or kind of learning any any skill you know you can't just sit down and expect to be able to do it and uh, I mean how many people do we know who've said yeah I think I've got a novel in me or I think or oh I think (laughs) I think I'm going to sit down and write a novel and you go yeah okay you know but are are you really have you got the stamina to sit down every day and write a novel and, and and structure it properly and develop it. And those are skills that it takes time to to be able to do, you know. So, but it's, so, you know, you shouldn't put that, you know, if you try and do something like that, most people will fail because they haven't put themselves through the development process. So I always kind of say, just start off with something small uh, and get your writing um, your, your kind of writing regime going where you're writing every day till you're comfortable with writing till it becomes second nature because you've done it so often uh, and right. then you know sit down and write that write that book you know when you've when yeah. you've when you've got yourself worked 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 to the point where you're where you're ready to do it and you can achieve it and finish it well, and I, I also think when you do that, you you're creating like your your like your style. You know, if you if you just start writing with no prior experience, you don't really have a voice. You know, so you're kind of developing that as you go along. Do you have any um, like habits that you do as an author? Like, do you write an hour a day, or do you kind of just how like what's your style with that? I I do a lot of planning. You know, I, I would kind of start off with just jotting down notes. You know, I don't like to start with a blank page. I'm like any other writer. Blank page just scares the shit out of me. And it's like, <laughs> I'm just kind of going, what? I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't do this. You know, I, don't, I think pretty much everything I've ever written at one stage, it's like going through a pain barrier, you know. Uh, where you think I can't do this, I'm going to have to write to the editor and say I'm really sorry, I just can't do it, and and, and eventually you do do it and you kind of find a way. But it's so much. I just find it so much less painful just to start with notes. Uh, I I kind of do like little <clears throat> mind maps, you know, uh, and just you kind of see the connections between the things, and then you gradually start to structure it get a sense of the structure of it and there comes a point where you kind of know where you're going with it and when you reach that point then that's when I kind of sit down and write the thing uh, and it just means that I'm much less likely to get halfway through and go oh I'm, I'm stuck you know or writer's block <laughs> yeah right right yeah John do you have any plans for what, what you're going to be putting out next after after this one I, you know, I'm going to wait and see how this book does, but I've got, I've got, 
cunning plans for maybe 40 more cult movies that I'm, you know, gathering stuff together for. So who knows? It, it, it might be that. I've got I've got other ideas as well um, of stuff that's kind of outside of horror and uh, cult movies. Um, but we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Well, the the book just came out recently. Again, it's it's forty cult movies from Alice, Sweet Alice to Zombies of Moratau. Um, I heard it was doing pretty good. Like you had put up a, 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 a an update, like it was number five on where where was that? Yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, it's, Amazon? yeah, wow. it's 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 still in the bestsellers, <laughs> whatever that means, um, for horror uh, on Amazon. So. Um, uh, so far, it looks like people are beginning to sort of find it, and I just hope that um, that you know when people do read it, that they'll enjoy it and maybe go and seek out some of those movies, and you know, just make sure that you watch the Redeemer Son of Satan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do that this week for sure. Um, I, well, let's I mean, make it our next, our next, our next movie, Ben. Let's yeah, do that. We should, we should do that. I, I think that's that's my inspiration for doing the podcast is just sharing something that I'm passionate about. And and if somebody hasn't, I mean, I'm assuming that most of the movies we've done so far, nobody has seen, has seen, um, unless they're like crazy horror fans. But I, I love the, I love being able to like influence somebody to watch something and then opening up their eyes to potentially going out and finding more and more. And, you know, that's, that's very exciting to me. So. I mean, that's really the kind of the reason I kind of wrote the book, you know, it's, it's that curiosity about the films, how did, how did these films come into being? And I just, uh, I just hope that, um, that kind of curiosity and enthusiasm comes across in the book and um, encourages people to to seek these movies out because of that same sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So where can people well, find you, um, you know, your social and you have a website and all that? Uh, yeah, well, the best place is on X. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> so X, I, you don't have to that. I still can't no, 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 take no. it seriously, but yeah, yeah sure. X, formerly known as Twitter. Formerly known yeah. as the artist, formerly known as <laughs> squiggly, <laughs> quick, squiggly thing. Uh, yeah, oh, um, yeah. So I'm there under System Shocks, System Shocks, or one word. So yeah, come and sink me out there. And I've got, cool. I, I've got a page on Amazon as well. So if you want to find out a little bit more about me uh you can go onto my amazon page there we're gonna do our best to to link to make links to those if you can email me your link to amazon so i make sure i have the right okay, one cool, lovely. i'll definitely pop that up i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to two nobodies um <laughs> just two crazy guys um that that they have a, an intense passion for underseen horror and stuff like that well, um, i've really enjoyed we, talking to you guys it's been a real real blast um to just to kind of go into depth about you know, this kind of the passion that we we all share for the for movies generally you know you just don't get that chance to talk to people in the same way 
to normal people. Normal people. Yeah. Normal people don't yeah. understand. So. No, it's, my nor my my normie friends don't understand. Yeah. I I can't talk to them about any of this stuff. Yeah. They would just be like, "What?" Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. It's I I really appreciate your time. I had a blast. Uh, learned a lot, and uh, definitely looking forward to reading more of your books oh, down the road. You. So, yeah, great. And, and all right, and, yeah. Good luck. Good luck for the rest of the po podcast, and I look forward to catching up with some of the other episodes as well. Thank you. I yeah. Buckle up, because okay. it's a rough one. <laughs> um, yeah, we hope to have you back when when you get your next one out. Or hey, if you're ever bored and you're like, hey, I want to go talk to these guys again, let us know, man. We'd gladly have you on. Yeah, well, just don't hurl too much abuse at me if you do watch uh, Redeemer, Son of Satan. You know, I don't, I don't want any, I don't want any hate messages kind of coming through. Why no, did you make no, watch no. this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I've already done that to Nick's a couple times now, so that's okay. <laughs> all right, John. John thank all you right, so guys. much. Great to talk to you. Have, a, have a great evening. Take care. Good night, John. Thank you. Where'd you go? Am I still recording? <laughs> it's the Ben shit show. No one else is here. I guess I'm going to have to log off. I don't know if I log off if it's going to lose all this. Uh...